Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 127, Interrogate Everything. This week we're discussing season 5, episode 12 of Buffy, Checkpoint, and the Doctor Who 2014 Christmas special, Last Christmas. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right, checkpoint this week. Um, we have the Watchers showing up um, in person yeah. because they found out some information um, yeah. about Glory. And, of course, they're not going to hand it over like decent people would. No, of course, no. they... Why would they do that? Why on earth? Why give something for free when you can get something out of it? So you have them... Uh, and exert your yeah right doing, yeah. yeah well right so I mean not to I want to kind of go through them a little in more detail but basically it comes out that this is a way for them to regain a lot of control that they mm -hmm. had sort of given up like I think that's a kind of interesting um, twist on their uh dynamic is you had this idea of Buffy and Giles getting sort of fired and abandoned by the Watchers Council. And what you kind of realize is that that probably had greater uh, negative implications for the Watchers than it did for, <laughs> for Buffy and Giles. Yeah. Not that they couldn't have used some support and resources, but it seems that uh, the Watchers may have been regretting that decision and this is their sort of way to fix that in a way that doesn't involve actually admitting any wrongdoing or apologizing for anything. Um, right, <laughs> right. So, like, here's a way we can get our power back that makes us look like we had power the whole time. <laughs> um, so, which is kind of an interesting twist, I think. Um, so... So we kind of get, you know, before they show up. So, you know, you could probably guess that just from the fact that they bother to sort of come in person. So, you know, there's a lot riding on this, you know, how this relationship goes. So they're not just going to send the information. They're going to come and make sure that this gets handled well. Um, right. And, you know, it kind of starts with all of them... Uh, you know, giving their ideas of what that will be like, you know, Buffy being, I think, quite rightly, very uh, suspicious of, you know, what they want and their influence. Um, Giles, I think, being a little surprisingly welcoming, um, which I think he kind of was in the last one, too. I mean, I think, you know, again, there's the kind of you know, they need the information. There's a kind of willingness to bargain with some unsavory people just to kind of get the the info sure. that they need. Um, but it's, I would say, too, it's, you know, part of that is that Giles knows their capability. So even like, right. you know, they threatened to um, deport him at one mm -hmm. point. And uh, like he knows that probably that's a possibility you know if they like they actually 
do hold a certain power over him yeah. that they don't hold over Buffy. Although, you know, they sort of try try to hold it over Buffy <laughs> until she's yeah. caught, you know, ends up calling him out on it. Um, but that, you know, but again, that that's the connection through Giles and only because yeah she needs him like it's not it's not actual power that they have over her sort of objectively speaking but i think i think one of the reasons why giles it seems to me is you know so sort of accommodating is because he kind of knows what they can do Mm -hmm. and you know what they're capable Mm -hmm. of in that regard Mm -hmm. but also i feel like right like he knows they're not going to get anywhere by resisting them anyway so Maybe yeah. willing to play ball to a certain extent to try to come to some sort of arrangement. But I would also say that there's also um, an aspect of which it's an institution that for a long time, like he respected and whatever. So like, even though he's not part of it, like there's still maybe sort of an awe there for him mm-hmm. and a, desire to respect it even though like we do see him sort of get angry and talk to them like i i still feel like there's that he has a certain there's a certain gravitas that you know the watchers council holds for him that for buffy like she couldn't care less about because the only experience she's ever had with them you know other than giles you know being her watcher was you know stuffy wesley and you know the terrible test that quentin put her through before mm-hmm. so like she doesn't hold any allegiance to them as she's proclaimed multiple times now yeah. you know and and it's that thing of you know but for him like he was with them for many years and you know sort of thought that he was always going to be with them and that kind of thing mm-hmm. so i think there's a certain level of just baggage Mm -hmm. i don't know like i you know maybe there's a better thing to call it than that but Mm -hmm. that's kind of what it boils down to for him that makes him more fearful in addition to knowing their capabilities and what they can do like he obviously has a much better grasp you know it's kind of that thing of like you're not afraid of the thing you don't know could kill you kind of Mm -hmm. thing you know if if you don't think it can kill you why would you be afraid Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know that kind of thing or whatever like i'm not saying watchers council will kill buffy but you know what i mean like that that sort of yeah no i mean um, i think they're both right to a certain extent like i think um you know it it surprises me a little that giles seems as shocked as he is that they would like do their dirty you know oh we'll deport you if you don't do what we say kind of thing but on the other hand like you said like you know, he isn't, he's thinking them of them as, like he says, you know, essentially they're on our side. So, you know, right. they may not, we may not like them, but when it does come down to it, they want the same thing as we do. Um, yeah. Which, you know, maybe Buffy's a little bit too quick to throw them into the evil pile. Although she is right in that they are not necessarily trustworthy either. So there's right. kind of a bit of truth, I think, in both of their, um, both of their assumptions. Yeah. Um, you know, but definitely well, like there's it's... Tara's thing of, isn't it just more, more Giles's? And, 
you know, whatever they are, that doesn't seem to be the case. They are definitely maybe, maybe ultimately on the right side and maybe they are very helpful, but you know, you also kind of think, have to keep an eye on them, I think. Um, yeah. There, there's, I think we've seen enough in Buffy, in the Buffy verse, so both Buffy and Angel. I think we've seen enough now, though, too, to sort of see like Whedon has sort of a, a general mistrust of institution. Sure. So I think what we're seeing here is that that applies also to the good guys. And and we sort of saw that with the initiative, too. Like, they were good in a way and fighting demons and whatever. But then, you know, you get to, like, the sort of detached science, mm -hmm. military, experimental side of things. And, like, suddenly it's like, well, maybe, yeah. maybe Frankenstein monster Adam isn't quite you know, right. the way things should be going, you know, like maybe we've overstepped a little bit in, you know, the grandness of our institutional mm -hmm. power. And then, you know, in Angel, obviously we get things like Wolfram and Hart and just, mm -hmm. you know, now they're seem to be on the bad side, but you know, it's, it's that institutional thing of like, they're on the bad side, but they're also the lawyers. So right. they, you know, get things, you know, they, they, work sort of with the law to allow their clients to continue, you know, doing. So I think, I think yeah. just sort of in those different um, aspects, you can just sort of see that sort of institutional mistrust. And it even, even at times when there's good, you know, uh, maybe at the heart of what the institution stands for, mm -hmm. it still ends up being an institution and kind of has this, uh, life of its own that that ends up sort of i don't i almost said corrupting i guess in a way it is a corrupting mm -hmm. influence like when you look at like quentin and them mm -hmm. like that that they're looking at themselves as being the beyond like you know we're the power you know that fights right. the demons and you're the tool with which we fight them right. kind of thing and it's like well how do you actually fight? Right, right. Like you don't, right. you sit in wherever in Britain somewhere. And right. Right. Well, there's the thing half a world away that, uh, you know, the council fights evil, the slayer is the instrument by which we fight. The council remains, the slayers change. It's been that way from the beginning. So you get this regard for the institution right. over the individual. Um, so the fact that the, the, corporate unity of the council becomes more important than the individuals that actually do the work. Um, and, you know, and kind of ignores the fact that why do the slayers change? Because they die because they're the ones doing the fighting. Like, you know, right. the, the council is well, this sort of eternal, you know, you know, body of people like you said that can exist whereas the slayers change because they're the ones actually they're more than just the instrument they are the ones and, doing the fighting and logically that's just not even true the council has changed many times over right. the you know no corporate body can ever be which is a funny term corporate body no corporation i guess or whatever um you know is a can actually be 
anything more than the people who make it right. up. Like, okay, you, you could talk about things like institutional memory and there's that, but what does that mean? It just means people wrote stuff down. Right. Like, that's no different than a library. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so so there's not actually anything better about being a right. corporate Right, there's you know, nothing entity. immortal about the council. Um, no, it's yeah. just that throughout history, there's been a string of people who have had this, you know, uh, the same purpose and maybe not, we don't, I mean, we don't know the history of the council. Maybe it hasn't always even had the same purpose. Who knows? But in reality, that's no different than the line of slayers who just happen to be one by one rather than like 10 by 10 or whatever the, you know, number of the council mm -hmm. of watchers has been. Yeah. So there's nothing more mystical about that or, you know, synergistic necessarily about it. It's still all individuals sort of making up that council. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, definitely a pretty complicated situation. Um, sure. So I want to go through their sort of, you know, so we have their demands, like, you know, we, we have this information, we won't give it to you unless we're satisfied that it's, you know, safe and in trustworthy hands. And to do that, we're going to test Buffy's ability as a slayer and, you know, also interrogate, you know, all these people that she insists having around her. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe we should start with them and go through, um, you know, her their kind of interrogation of her friends. Um, so, you know, it's not really as formal, but... I think the fact that they take over the store from Giles is sort of part of that of like, you oh, know, yeah. we're yeah. going to, you know, look at how you conduct your business. And there's all the little snide comments about how, you know, Oh, you have a special room for the dangerous stuff. Oh, well you don't worry about that. Like he's, you know, recklessly endangering, you know, like anything they can do. Right. And again, you do get the feeling through the whole thing. Like, all of these tests are set up to, if not guarantee, at least encourage Buffy's failure. You know, like, you know, I, I'm not saying they're wrong that Giles should keep dangerous objects away from the general public, but you, I get the impression that there's, you know, we're looking for things to give you bad marks on. Um, you know, we're going to kind of come in unannounced and take over with no warning, you know, catch you with your pants down kind of thing um, to try to kind of make you look as unprepared and foolish as possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. I get that impression to jump ahead very slightly. I get that impression too with Buffy's test, like how ridiculous and, oh, and yeah. impractical it is. Like what situation would this ever, you know, you're blind and somebody's shouting your, you know, like, this would never, there's no practical value to this test whatsoever. Right. It's a kind of guaranteed to fail setup. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I mean, again, thinking of sort of the institutional thing, you know, I mean, even just, you know, when I worked for a large multinational corporation, <laughs> like, Which they, you know, you would, you would have these sorts of things where it's like, you've got a group of people in a room or, you know, more often on a, conference line like they're not even in the same room um 
going over like policies and procedures and developing these things that like they don't have any clue of how like say you know a person who actually talks to a customer you know what they have to deal with or or how they you know work with the computer system or that you know just things like that where it's like and it's not even like they're doing it maliciously but it's it's literally a matter of ignorance but it's that inability to recognize that they're ignorance and belief that they have more knowledge than the other people mm-hmm. that is what sort of drives that you know arrogance and and uh like you said like it, it's just not the this is a ridiculous situation if you actually stop to think about like when this could ever happen like how is shouting something in japanese you know well better than just saying yeah. punch him right <laughs> like right right yeah for why, for all why those, would you not for all those occasions in which you're blinded and expected to interpret directions in japanese like what like you know um yeah totally out of touch with the reality of what her job is um you know, and what she's sort of, you know, capable of doing. Um, so um, I want to go through the interviews with the Scoobies, too. Um, so I guess to start with uh, Xander, there's the, you know, implications about his usefulness, you know, because they don't really think any of them are useful, but like, at least like with Willow and Tara, they actually have a skill. They can sort of, you know, something that your average person, you know, doesn't yeah. necessarily have. Whereas, you know, as with Xander, we always get back to his sort of, you know, uh, all around normalcy. And, you know, um, his unremarkability <laughs> is and, what and makes the... him remarkable in the group. Like, <laughs> Right, right. Um, yeah, you have no right. special the, the skills badness. or powers or knowledge that you bring to the, like nothing, you know, not even more knowledge. Like it doesn't even have to be a physical contribution, just anything that you bring that the, nobody else has. And he's kind of like, yeah. no. Um, but we come back to this thing of, I don't have any powers, but I do help. And the helping, you know, the the loyalty, the being there is its own, you know, at times crucial contribution. Um, well, and even just looking at like how they frame the questions and stuff, the watchers, I mean. Um, right. Again, like, a guaranteed to fail sort of. Yeah, setup. it's guaranteed yeah. to fail. So it's either like, either you're useless and, you know, have no, no merit. And therefore the Slayer is wrong to include you because you know you're more of a liability than anything Mm -hmm. and you know she's just putting people in danger or you are helping which means she's weaker than she should be and so therefore you know there's something different wrong with her you know because of that Um, right right so he says like oh we combined our essences and they kind of take that to mean that Buffy her Buffy's not enough she needs this sort of right you know, to absorb the strength of her friends because she can't do yeah. it on her own. Um, right. When, and it's, I mean, and we've been talking since episode one about how Xander, you know, gives that little, you know, it's not that Buffy's not strong, 
but she needs that yeah extra little tiny bit of you know shoulder muscle to get the door shut so the vampires don't get them and you know not that's not to say anything about like she's still stronger than most people mm-hmm. but any other slayer in various situations would have or you know certainly might have died when you know because they didn't have friends right. so that's not to say that buffy's less of a person it just means that everybody needs help sometimes right the right bit of help at the right moment makes yeah. all the difference yeah. um yeah and then you know buffy's defense of him at the end of you know he he his field time that he's clocked so like the fact that he's act and <laughs> yeah. he's sort of proud of that you know i clocked field time like you know the just right. the fact of being there you know he's more experienced than you know again like the watchers with their sort of irrelevant test which has no practical value whatsoever Xander has yeah. a better idea of what it's actually like in the field than they do mm-hmm. um and he's part of the unit not you know what he can do matters less than the fact that he's a member of the group and that's kind of reason enough um Especially if you go back to that kind of soul triptych idea, you know, where it, it's yeah. that, you know, you can't have all of that, you know, you can't have one of them without all of them. You need that completeness, I guess. Um, right. And then Anya <laughs> is, you know, very anxious about them finding out, you know, uh, about her being an ex-demon um, and her sort of overcompensation is very funny, you know. <laughs> right. Anya Christina Emanuela Jenkins, 20 years old, born on the 4th of July, and don't think there weren't jokes about that my whole life, mister, because there were. <laughs> Who's our little patriot, they'd say, when I was younger, and therefore smaller and shorter than I am now. <laughs> and you realize this is before uh, anybody's even asked a question. She's just like, right. she's got her life story memorized and you know is ready at you know to answer any you know question in any degree of you know detail so um and she has both a mother and a father and a father (laughs) um you know and i like her cop out at the end of you know when buffy says she's the next demon willow's a demon (laughs) like right (laughs) throw willow under the bus you know deflect their attention (laughs) of course of Of course it's willow like who who is maybe if they attack somebody at least it'll be willow you know um so yeah yeah i mean she's always good fun um (laughs) like the the you know the thought in which she like trying to kind of reconstruct, you know, what is a, you know, normal middle American, you know, who's our little Patriot. Like, you know, you can't (laughs) possibly suspect me because I'm like American pie, you know, (laughs) like, um, she's funny. And then, okay. So Willow and Tara, um, there's a couple things. I mean, you mentioned they have a lot of the, the back and forth of we want to look like we're helping Buffy, but not too much, you know, the kind of like, here's how we're useful, but we don't want to imply that we are stronger than Buffy or that Buffy couldn't do it without us. And so they keep like, everything they say is wrong. Um, 
you know, yeah. everything is going to come out wrong. Um, and then, and I like too, that they're kind of, you know, ignorance of, in some ways, you know, magical things like, you know, what level are you? And Tara's just like five. <laughs> and then like five. Yeah, shrugs at like Willow, shrugs at Willow, like, I don't know. Um, you know, and <laughs> asks if they're registered, you know, I don't think we've even heard of a registry before. So apparently yeah, you can register right. as a witch and, you know. Right. What authority is registering witches and yeah. who is, uh, you know, creating these magical proficiency levels and right, right. all of that. And, and like they, they haven't even heard of it before. Like that's how off their radar it is. And, and not only that, but like Giles hasn't even brought right. it. Right. Like it's not <laughs> right. even like important enough right. that like, like he would have said, oh, well, you know, you're getting better at magic. You, you should might probably consider register, like, yeah. You should register and maybe test yourself to find out what level of proficiency you're at. Whatever. It's like, he's like, yeah, like it doesn't even register on his right, radar right. apparently that like, this is something they should do. Right. And I'm sure the council would be like, that's another point against right. Giles because it doesn't, right. you know, register on his radar. But at the same time, it's like, how important is that really? Right. Like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Again, another setup for failure, you know, probably. Right you know maybe if there is a registry they know about it but like you know we're just bringing it up because anything that you know is a is a failed answer you know yeah. is we're going into as much like obscure detail as we possibly can um and then you know there's they're also kind of uh growing a little bit more bold about uh declaring their relationship but still kind of getting used to it so you know they're <laughs> the awkward um you know we're yeah. we're in love we're, we're lovers we're lesbian gay type lovers you know like um <laughs> trying to figure out how do we define this relationship you know in front of people who are asking us to like go into all this detail and again like Anya that's not what they were asking at all and you know right um you know so uh very funny yeah no very funny but also i mean like you said like it's it's just each of these are sort of tailored you mm -hmm. know to to sort of embarrass and throw them off guard just like with giles and you know coming into a shop unannounced yeah. and closing it down and it's like you know all of the these are all these are all like power moves mm -hmm. right they're all you know attempts to uh overshadow and overpower and dominate you know the people that you're talking to and questioning and and ultimately to sort of show buffy as being inadequate and so when you know you come down to it like you know i think like you said kind of at the beginning that this is in a way the watchers are coming back to sort of fix their problem without actually acknowledging that they have a problem yeah. or you know whatever so what's the way they do that well the way they do that is to make it seem like buffy is so in such dire straits without them that she has no choice mm -hmm. but to take and this is like i mean when you think about it, you like you could almost think about it as like uh you know an abusive mm -hmm. romantic relationship yeah 
uh, you know, insofar as it's like, well, you'll take me back because you're nothing without right. me. You know, you'll you'll come running back to me. You know, you you can't survive on your own. Right. You need me. Right. How do um, I how do I prop myself up? It's by pushing you down. Like you know, yeah. we'll look more powerful if we can belittle Buffy. Um, and like you said, yeah, make it seem like she has no choice but to accept these ridiculous terms and jump all through these hoops because she can't, you know, uh, you know, do anything without us, which isn't true, but they can make it seem like that through all of these, you know, all of this hoop jumping. Um, so I like that when, um, to kind of go to the, the Buffy sort of confrontation with them at the end, um, you know, and, and she has these other encounters, which we'll talk about where she's in like this repeated, that's really every conversation she has this episode is some form of that, you know, everybody she talks to, you know, is, you know, which kind of is what makes her have the revelation of, you know, like she says, I have all these people lining up to tell me how little I am and they're going to threaten all these things, which they don't do because they're empty threats because mm -hmm. the people need her more than she needs them, you know, and mm -hmm. the threats are only there to scare or coerce her into giving them what they need. Um, so I kind of like that right. she has that revelation in the end and that like, um, the only power they have is, you know, this one card, which they refuse to, to hand over, which is this information, um, you know, and, you know, that even not just to get back in her good graces, but like, she puts it like to give your lives meaning, like, yeah, you have all this information, but without a slayer, what use is it to you? Like, you know, they don't have super slayer strength to go out and fight glory. Um, and they can't even really, you know, like they could publish in their really obscure journals that nobody reads. So, you know, all of this information that they have is, you know, basically useless if they don't get back with her, um, you know, which obviously puts her back in the, the, the power seat um you know and and completely rewrites the whole terms at which they just accept <laughs> like there's no like arguing it's like it's sort of like this like oh man we really hoped we would get away with this but we kind of knew that we wouldn't so it's not even really worth like haggling over um because she's right and uh you know quentin understands her at the end yeah well and i like that turn of you know in the beginning when he's like i think like very condescending so, yeah I so think condescending yeah. buffy understands yeah. me you know and like cutting off giles yeah. and everything and and buffy turning it right back around and not being you know threatening or condescending to him mm -hmm. but saying like just matter of factly i think you understand me. this is the way it is you know that you're done like yeah you don't have any moves left so yeah. you either take it or you don't this just the way it is mm -hmm. um but yeah anyway so i like how the second time through um 
I kind of noticed a little bit more um, the argument with the teacher as being the kind of like foreshadowing of that. Like I didn't necessarily on the first one, it didn't like bother me, but it didn't necessarily like the relevance of that scene. You know, you don't really understand until later. It's like, here's another like, you know, kind of patronizing, you know, crusty old man who like, you know, uh, is just gonna put her down in front of everybody and make her feel small. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and again, with the kind of condescending language of, you know, unless you have something to add professor, you know, like, um, she may have a good point, but that won't matter if he can make it seem like she's, you know, stupid and uh, doesn't know what she's talking about. Um, so it's sort of a, again, I feel like all of the different encounters that she has in this episode are all kind of like looking forward to that final um, confrontation with Quentin. Um, and then I guess Glory's, well, no, there's a the little thing with Spike, which again, like, is the same sort of thing. He, you know, interrupts her slaying um, to jump in and, you know, rescue her when she doesn't need the rescuing. So, um, right. you know, again, you kind of get him, again, somebody who is the kind of powerless one in the relationship, who's doing everything he can to you know, convince her of how, you know, much she needs him, <laughs> but, you know, is covering up the fact that it's sort of the opposite. Mm. Um, and then there's the, yeah. sorry, did you have something else for? No, I just, and, you know, so the, the, obviously the jumping in when, when she doesn't need mm -hmm. him and like, not only that, but like, she was taking out her frustration on the man. Right. So she's kind and, of enjoying it. Yeah. Like it, it wasn't even like that he killed a vampire when she didn't need to, but actually like killed it before she wanted right. to, you know, it to be killed. Like she was doing a cat and mouse sort of thing with it. But then also the, the frustration of like, you know, one, why are you here Two, Why would I like, you know, Spike keeps expecting some sort of gratitude right. for, various gestures. like you know again it's like going back to the uh you know you want me to you want me to praise you for not you know sucking the blood out of helpless victims yeah. like <laughs> well, why yeah. why is this yeah. a thing like there there's just this you know spike has this warped sense mm -hmm. of what he should actually you know you know how buffy should think of it and you know and we know why because we see like him standing there in front of a mannequin, you know, giving speeches that don't even go well in his own head. Right. Um, you know, but there's, you know, from Buffy's perspective, it's just completely baffling because it just makes no sense. And then he walks away, like, dismissing her after, like, you know, again, belittling her about her inability to keep a man mm -hmm. and, you know, like all this stuff. So it's, not all that different from the watchers, you know, and their belittlement yeah. of, yeah. you know, nothing you do is right. And 
you know, I took care of the vampire. You can't keep a boyfriend. And by the way, bored now leaving. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, I think just a, another interesting, yeah. you know, aspect of it. And again, like, you know, with, with knowing sort of Spike's uh, desires or whatever for her that, you know, this is, this is, you know, again, that sort of nice guy attitude of like, you know, I do nice things for you and you should appreciate it. You know, you owe me one yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And it, it's that uh, underhanded way of like, you know, trying to control that relationship, mm-hmm. which doesn't actually exist. It just exists in Spike's brain. Right. And the kind of like logical leaps of like, you suck. Why don't you love me? <laughs> you know, like, right. you know, like all I right. do is talk about how dumb you are. And, you know, but, you know, you're the jerk for, you know, uh, not accepting all of these gestures, these, you know, what probably seem to spike like grand romantic gestures, um, you know, and yeah. And that like the watchers that the subtext being take me back, please, you know, like that's the kind of what I really want out of the situation, but would never ever state it in those terms um so yeah because why would you actually say what you want right exactly um although i like that in his little interview the 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 lady watcher who apparently wrote her thesis on him um (laughs) kind of gets it right away you know he's like doing his oh she's she's awful she can't keep a man and you know it it makes her you know sad and Oh, uh, you know, before you know it, she'll be crying on my shoulder. And the watcher's like, is that what you want? Like, you know, she kind of cuts right to the core of yeah. um, what he's saying. That, but I also get from her that there's a little bit of like, oh, I did my thesis on you. Like, she kind of has maybe a slight crush on him as well. Oh, yes, like, definitely. <laughs> yeah, no, or, she yeah, kind of. Or maybe not so No, slight. she gets a little like fangirly about it. Um yeah. 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 He's like the the dangerous but alluring, you know, kind of like rock star or something that she, you yeah. know. Uh and they clearly don't know about like his chip and stuff because they've got like right. the stakes and the crosses right. and Well, and just the fact know, that right. she has this vampire working for her is again another mark against Buffy. Oh, yeah. You know, that he <laughs> he you know and of She's course never he, given her blessing, but a, but he tells her, oh, she lets me have the blood of the victims. Like, yeah. you know, completely. Like, obviously not. Yeah. Uh, um, not true. I, I mean, everything he said. Okay, like, Giles paid him once, but Buff, I don't right. think Buffy's ever actually paid him to do right. anything. And, um, yeah, just like that thing of like, oh, it's like this explicit you know contract like we have between us like oh yeah i work for money and, right, right you know every now and then when someone's dying she lets me right. you know feed from him a little right it's just like what yeah um so so yeah um i think the next one is uh when glory shows up in her apartment or her house her house. house. And, um, you know, again, I mean, we kind of, you know, not to beat a dead horse or anything, but again, it's this idea of glory telling her 
you know, oh, you know, I could kill you. Oh, I'll kill everyone you love. Oh, you know, you're so small and I'm so great. But again, why doesn't she do all this stuff? Because, you know, she can't kill Buffy because Buffy's the only one who knows where the key is. So, you know, just by the very fact of Buffy being alive, she can't really, you know, deliver on these threats. Um, and again, you and know, if she starts killing the people Buffy loves, Buffy's certainly not going to help. Yeah. So yeah. again, you know, her, you know, using these tactics because she she needs Buffy more than Buffy needs her. I mean, Buffy doesn't need her at all. She just wants her gone. Um, so, uh, other than that, I feel like, you know, we definitely should talk a couple minutes about the fact that Dawn comes in. Um, so there's a couple things there, you know, Glory has, seems to have no, there's no like immediate recognition, you know, there's no kind of spidey sense of like, oh, the key's nearby or, you know, um, she doesn't seem to suspect at all that the key could be, you know, a person or that, you know, one of Buffy's family might be the key. Um, you know, and, uh, with Dawn picking up from the end of the last episode, you're getting her kind of overhearing these cryptic conversations and she knows there's stuff she's not supposed to hear and is getting more curious about it. You know, she kind of obeys Glory and ignores Buffy and, you know, uh, you know, kind of you know, boasts about, oh, you know, I'm going to find out this stuff eventually. Um, well, yeah, which is like, because one, Dawn has no idea who Glory is, but like, right. Dawn should have been able to like hear, like if she's overhearing things, like she should be paying attention to like, like know that a, Glory isn't there on like a social call. This is like, like this a is, bad guy, stay away. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so her sort of petulance there is also like in the face of, everything she knows about who Buffy is and like Dawn should know better than to just like go spouting things off. But yeah, she does kind of, you know, like her, like little, like, you know, I'm going to find things out. Like I know stuff, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, well, no, you don't, but, well, like, but now, that's the fear. Well, and you don't know stuff, but now maybe glory thinks you do. Um, so right. if she wasn't coming after you because she thought you were the key, Maybe now she has another reason to come out, come after you, which is just for information. Um, so that's a potentially dangerous thing. And and there's, I mean, you know, of course, Glory picks exactly the thing to say to her of like, you know, Buffy took my key, you know. Yeah. How do you feel? Like, isn't she such a mean sister? Right. Like, you can you know, relate like, to this. And, yeah. Yeah. Like th this whole like, that's exactly what would appeal to Don is, you know, seeing Buffy in sort of the mean sister light because mm -hmm. Buffy hasn't always been sort of the nicest to her. And, right. um, especially recently, like, it seems almost like once Buffy, you know, found out that Don was the key, you know, we talked about how like she's become even more strict and like more sort of overbearing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with her just to not, you know, like even like, you're letting her go across the street to her friend's house, you know, kind of stuff. Like, um, 
And of course, Dawn doesn't know the reason why Buffy's being this way. And it just seems like she's being a crappy older sister, you know, not a loving, caring, yeah. I'm looking out for you, older sister. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, so to make a quick connection between the two stories, um, that just occurred to me that, um, like you said, of course she picks the one really good, you know, uh, or, you know, Glory's, uh, threat of Buffy's family is, you know, (coughs) you know, the one threat that might actually work or gets Buffy to act. Um, and, Mm. you know, that being a similar thing with the watchers, like, threatening Giles is, you know, going right for the jugular. So this, you know, we always talk about the Slayer with family and friends, the loss of um, that family and friends is, you know, the biggest fear and the thing that would come closest to getting Buffy to actually like, you know, succumb to these threats. Um, Yeah. You know, and that being yeah. the thing that she has to protect most is those people. Um, so she takes them to Spike, you know, which um, on the one hand, there's a logic to it. You know, she takes them to Giles or to Willow or to Xander. Those people are all sort of in the line of fire anyway. So it doesn't really protect Dawn and Joyce all that much. It just like gives them to some more people who are also targets. Um, You know, so it kind of makes sense that, you know, Spike being not someone who is known to be, like, it's sort of hiding them in plain sight. Like, you know, he's good camouflage Mm -hmm. because he's not the trustworthy friend. He's not someone that you expect Buffy to go to for help because she said she doesn't need his help. Um, But she does in this case you know or at least yeah at least he's the best option um you know and um you know yeah. and i think not trustworthy for personal reasons because of anything he's done but you know trustworthy in the sense i guess like you know I mean, we've talked about how it doesn't even bother Buffy that he can get in her house anymore. It's like he's become this tame vampire that she doesn't trust him per se, but she doesn't worry about him either. Like, you know, there's really, it doesn't seem like she sees him as any sort of threat anymore um, that might, you know, go against her or, you know do something to her family. It Like, I don't think she would give them to him if she was worried about that. Um, so that's kind of interesting. As much as she kind of talks about not needing him or trusting him, she also puts a lot of faith in him in this episode. Um, yeah. And... I mean, on the one hand, there's sort of a desperation to it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, because, and, you know, she says, no, you're the only one strong enough. But also there's the fact that Spike isn't connected to her in any obvious external way. Right. Like, I mean, we 
obviously know and and she and the Scoobies all know Spike's background and sort of the back and forth that has happened over the years. But from Glory's perspective, why would she ever know about Spike right. or, you know, anyone really beyond that group wouldn't really know about Spike. Right. So there's also like, yeah, like he's strong, you know, he's stronger than the average person because he's a vampire and everything, but also it's a safe place for them because it's obscure. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no way that glory has of knowing that they would be there. Yeah. Or um, that a slayer would ever trust a vampire in this way. Right. Um, right. And, and the trust there, you know, obviously goes back to the chip, but again, you know, we've been talking about from sort of the beginning of Spike getting that chip is how much does that equate to either a conscience or a soul or, you know, whatever, uh, measure you want to go by there. Um, and at least in this instance, in, in, you know, again, in a desperate instance, I don't think we're meant to believe that Buffy like wholly trusts Spike, but at, on the same token, like you just said about, you know, family and friends, well, she at least trusts him enough to not hurt them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's something there. And I, I mean, we can't bring up that scene without bringing up um, Buffy or uh, Joyce and Spike and their shared love of passion. Right, right. TV Which show. I like um, that whenever they're together, they get along. Like, didn't they like drink right. hot cocoa together way back right. then? Like they had oh, a whole, yeah, yeah, yeah. they had a whole, like, I, they talked about his relationship and she sort of gave him advice. And, you know, I, I kind of like that weird little uh, thing that they have. Um. Yeah, that's right. No, I totally, I totally forgot about it. Like even way back, like when they first meet and they're like sitting on the couch together. Yeah, that's what I'm, oh, so what, right. That's right. You know, There's like that about. awkward. Yeah. I um, forgot about that one. And, I was thinking like, about uh, the one that came later, but yeah. Spike. Uh, yeah. Like there's one time where like they're in the kitchen and Spike's like kind of making like, you know, like growly signs like right. behind her. Right. And like when Buffy's looking like, Ooh, I'm going to bite your mom. Right. But, right. You know, like, yeah. Like you do I feel like that's when she genuine, makes him Coco. Because you think he might do something, and then he's, like, you know, whining about Drew, and she's sort of, you know, giving him a a sympathetic ear. Right, that's when he comes back into town, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think I I remember that striking me at the time. So, I like that whenever they get together, they just get along. You know, like, they kind of, you know, they kind of like the same things. They're easy to talk to. Um, (laughs) You know, they immediately go into... You know, like you do with your favorite shows, theorizing about what's going to happen next, and you know. Right. Oh, do you think Timmy's dead? Right, right. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's funny. Right. Um. That, yeah, that is funny, and and like we had seen sort of Buffy and Giles previously with the passions thing. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I and and of course Don, typical you know teenager sort of reaction just rolls her eyes mm-hmm. kind of like can't believe i'm here yeah <laughs> um <coughs> and so i want to talk about quick to the last sort of encounter that buffy has which is with these knights of the byzantium um yes these sort of medieval armored knights who um yeah. you know who are these weirdos yeah kind of 
sneak up in a dark alley and, you know, uh, gang up on her and she kind of takes care of them. And um, so, you know, if I'm understanding their role correctly, you know, so he says, you know, we're an ancient order and now your enemy. You think we align ourselves with the beast? You must be mad. So long as you protect the key, the brotherhood will never stop until we destroy it and you. So, you know, a lot of that is just sort of slightly vague. So I have to sort of speculate a bit, but it seems like their goal is, you know, they're, they're against glory, but to the extent that the only, my guess would be that the only way to stop glory is to destroy the key. And so a kind of, we'll do that by any means necessary type thing. So we don't care who we have to kill in order to get this done. Um, that seems to be there. So they've kind of put Buffy on the must be killed list because she's protecting this key. Um, yeah. um right. And so, uh, so of course this, the beast, um, glory has been called that before. Yeah. Um, and I, we may have even heard that. Well, so that's what, um, the guy, the sort of monk guy mm-hmm. from the Order of Dagon, um, and you know the whole Dagon sphere and all that, mm-hmm. uh, were. That's what he referred to it as. I can't remember if he referred to it before we even saw her. So like mm-hmm. you're thinking of like the Beast, right. and then you find out it's this you know, blonde-haired woman in high heels kind of right. Thing. And and, um. So yeah. So definitely, just just want to point that out so that we remember. <laughs> yeah. Um. That she's been called the Beast before, yeah. but. Um, yeah, like, so clearly these guys are against her as well, but not in this, like, this is not like, you know, uh, the monks were. Like, they were, you know. Right. Oh, this the key, key is precious, is precious protect it. And, yeah, yeah. And you need to protect it. And, right. you know, it's a person now. These are, no, the beast must be stopped at any cost. And that includes, you know, destroying the key. Yeah. So that, you know, because that's, again, like the key is supposed to open portals and, you know, right. uh, whatever, you know, whatever. So, um, yeah. And we get, I mean, if we believe the boastings of the guy uh, who, you know, the night that Buffy talks to, uh, he says, you know, kind of like, if it takes a hundred men, we'll send a hundred. If it takes a thousand, we send a thousand, you know? Yeah. Uh, you kind of, you kind of get that escalating like threat, like in, uh, you know, what is it? The Godfather or whatever. It's like, well, you know, if, if he stabs one of ours, we shoot one of theirs, right, kinda, right. you know, like, you know, um, you know, all of these, all of these sort of boasts that he has. Um, right. So it seems like, you know, I would expect to, see them again you know assuming that he his boasts are not totally empty um you know I that mean, these it, guys will be coming and sending reinforcements definitely we get the sense of a fanatic here yeah. like this is not like a reasonable guy who's gonna just like yeah run away and never come back like yeah. Yeah, he's he's going to get his buddies yeah. and 
and there's gonna you know be a showdown maybe at some point. yeah um so yeah uh but we don't know when or how or where or if there are really thousands or if that was just kind of a thing he said um so we'll we'll have to well and the, find that out later the frustrating bit for buffy is that of course they they don't like glory but they're not going to go attack her they'll like just get in buffy's way <laughs> like right that's the guy well, yeah because like, that's the easier yeah, way exactly it seems um so you know you know when there's a showdown it's not going to be the knights versus glory it's going to be like you know buffy's about to defeat glory and then these bozos come in and like you know ruin it is sort of my prediction um so to finish up with glory because we get some more stuff with her um on her own um which I think we talked about last time. The last we haven't seen her in a couple episodes, and the last time we saw her right. was waiting in her hotel room for the snake, which never comes back. To she never sort of finds out right. what happened or you know what it knew and everything. Um, so it starts with her sort of looking. She's always been very, you know sleek and healthy and put together and powerful and all these things and now so you get her looking kind of like pale and sweaty and weak and everything um and so they her her minions bring in you know uh this victim who she sort of does her little poor postal worker who's probably just delivering mail right right you know place so um she does her kind of brain zappy thing um and and that sort of now, restores her have, to have we seen that before yeah yes we did yeah okay was it it was with the guard with right? the guard right. i think in her first Sister episode okay. yeah in like I, the kind of i thought warehouse. so but i yeah. couldn't remember offhand and i didn't want to like yeah well and so i feel like we've gotten all the pieces of it before but this is the first time we're seeing like the whole picture of like the puzzle all put mm. together of like, okay, it seems like she needs to do this in order to have her strength. So she does the kind of head zappy thing. She gets restored. And then we see the the victim kind of wander off sort of saying his little nonsense. So you kind of get the idea of like, it's confirming that these, uh, you know, at least some of these kind of, uh, yeah. you know, crazy people who are wandering around are the victims of glory. Um, mm-hmm. And, and makes sense, you know, when we think back to like the Queller demon and yeah. Ben saying that he, he's the one who summoned it yeah. to, right. uh, to sort of clean, clean up, up glory's mess, mess yeah. you know? So yeah. what does that mean? It means kill the crazy people right. that she, right. you know, turned insane or whatever. Right. Um, so, you know, and then you also get, you know, so she needs to do this in order to survive, it seems, or at least to have the power that she does. Um, and then you also get from the minion that there's also, uh, you know, a, a limit maybe to how long she can do this or or a limit to how mm. long the key is effective or there's some sort of, um, you know, time crunch. There's, uh, you know, he says that the signs of the alignment are moving faster 
than expected. If yeah. you are to use the key, you must act quickly. So she has to do this, you know, soon, which she yeah. kind of boasts about. But again, you know, she doesn't exactly get the information she wants from Buffy. So maybe easier said than done. Um, right. Yeah. Well, so how do you interpret that? like timing issue i mean the signs of the alignment to me sounds like some sort of like planetary alignment like mm. maybe it's like you know you know when the thrush knocks at the whatever you know like that kind of thing of like <laughs> if we don't do it now you'll maybe you'll have to wait another millennia or something like you know there's some sort of unique circumstance that she has to do it either on a specific time or by a specific time. And then that's her window. And, you know, um, mm -hmm. either maybe that's, it's gone for good, or maybe she just has to like wait a really long time. Um, so that's kind of what it sounds like to me. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah. Just, just curious. That would be my guess. Um, You know, and so we get a little bit more. We still don't know exactly what her relationship is with Ben, um, but we get a little bit more. Um, she's frustrated by him. She seems surprised that he doesn't want to help her. You know, like, not only would it be really right. easy, but why wouldn't he want to? Um, so he's not sort of set up as like an enemy necessarily because she expects his help. Um, and, you know, it's sort of like just annoyed when he doesn't give it, I think I said this before, there's like, there's a sibling quality to me, which I don't know whether that'll turn out to be right or not, but you know, that thing of like, you know, oh, he's being such a jerk. He won't help me with this thing that I needed. Like it's the, there's the kind of like petulance to it. It's not like oh, he defied me and I'm going to, like, strike him down. It's like she's just sort of, like, you know, irritated by it more than anything. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's the phrase, well, of course he's attractive. Right. You know? Right. And and it's like, well, what? why is that obvious? Right. You know? Right. So that could maybe imply more of, like, possibly a romantic relationship um you know or something about ben because so i want to mention the fact that we find out from quentin that glory is a god um yeah. so you know maybe ben is a god too because you know you think of like the greek gods and they're sort of epitome of beauty you know like maybe he's of course he's attractive because he's apollo or something i don't know like you know maybe that's why it's obvious because he's this sort of divine being and of course we're all attractive um i don't know that's a guess um so and then so with him it wasn't clear i think before with the Queller Demon, what his intentions were exactly. Like he said he was cleaning up Glory's mess, but it I don't think it was so sure, does that mean he's on her side or not? Um, 
And mm-hmm. in here, again, it seems like, no, he's not exactly on her side because he refuses to help, you know, First of all, he doesn't know that Buffy's the Slayer, if we believe him. So it seems like he wasn't, like, spying on her for glory. Um, right. And then he refuses to give her up. And then he just, like, beats up the demon, or the, the minion, um, <laughs> right. to, like, send... It's like, he, he sent a message He, he sends his message. So it seems like, no, he's... If he's not openly opposed to glory, at least he's not really on her side. Um, mm-hmm. Even though she expects him to be so yeah and i mean on the one hand like he is a nurse you know working on becoming a doctor or whatever and so you do you get the sense that like there's a respect for life or whatever that maybe he has that glory Mm. doesn't seem to have at the same time he did summon a demon to kill people who glory caused to go insane so like you know how do you look at that he's not exactly benevolent either well well maybe we don't know is it is it well we talked about that as like that could be like a mercy sort of yeah is it a euthanasia sort of thing where like it it's better for them not to be alive than to remain in this state kind of thing and i'm sure like you know you can look at that from many different standpoints but if, as you posit, he, you know, were also some sort of divine being, like, maybe he feels more of a, you know, a different sort of moral obligation. I almost said more of a moral obligation. Like, it's maybe, you know, like looking at it from, uh, you know, from that perspective, almost, almost a Lovecraftian perspective of like, to us, it's completely amoral because we just don't understand the morality mm-hmm. that we're dealing with. You know, if, you know, again, if that's the case and that's whatever, you could almost read it that way that he's working from a different set of standpoints. So you could almost come across as, like you said, like he's not with her and he's <clears throat> not necessarily against her, but he's not going to help her either. Right. Like, you know, there's, he just has completely different motives perhaps right, than. Right we understand um as she seems to be too though we're starting to see some of her motives Mm -hmm. i mean you know she wants a key to use at a particular point and it seems to be that point is you know uh possibly not gonna stick around forever so Mm -hmm. um you know that's where she's working towards but yeah we don't we don't know as much about ben but um we know more than we well, did we we do know more than we did and and just the fact that like there does seem to be you know whatever the connection is whether uh you know it's familial as you sort of implied before or romantic or you know racial i guess mm-hmm. is that what you would call it if they're both gods sure. like you know whatever like there's something some deeper connection between them yeah you like like this solidifies that if we weren't you know maybe sort of quite sure before yeah this at least solidifies the fact that there's there's something um not i almost said symbiotic it, it doesn't seem to be symbiotic in like uh you help me and I, i'll help you right, sort right. of way but um coexistence or something like that like i'm not i'm not sure the right term to use but yeah 
you know, something along those lines. Right. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, any, any other final thoughts about this episode? Did we cover what we wanted to? I think I covered everything that I had. Um, cool. Yeah. So glory's yeah. a God. So I like, after all her big speech, I like Buffy's little, Oh, at the end, like, you know, that kind of put her back in her place a little bit. Like, didn't realize this was quite, you know, we're upping the level of big yeah. bad that we've um, encountered before. So. Yeah. And so, all right. Well, like, we should move on, but, yeah. like, I'm going to spend a few minutes on that. Because that's a good point. Because we have gotten um, sort of this increasing, you know, uh like, you know, we start off season one with, like, just a really bad vampire. Right, right. And then, like, season two, it's like, well, you know. A really, really angel. bad vampire. So, like, a really, really <laughs> bad. Like, you know, not only a bad vampire, but one who's, like, infamous, yeah. you know, throughout history for yeah. being, you know, exceptional. Well, and he means something personal to Buffy in a way that maybe the Master and, did. And, right, absolutely. Um, then we get this, like, you know, ascension of the mayor mm-hmm. into this you know like really really bad demon, like worse than vampires you know and whatever yeah um like a true demon like vampires are just sort of you know half demon but you know this is this is a true demon right um then we get i you know maybe it's not quite an escalation in in the way of um you know going from vampire to like a true demon kind of thing but it's like going back to this idea of like now you're now it's like a synthetic bad so it's like you know you've engineered a badness that's like worse than the other bads that are you know quote natural yeah even though they're like supernatural but you know what i mean like they're 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 just like the natural order of badness Mm -hmm. whereas this is like badness you know put before a committee and right. tweak to its maximum efficiency. Right. Right. Badness. And I think too, the um, kind of epic battle between, you know, the initiative yeah. and the vampire and all that, like the demons and everything like that, um, that has and, a and, grander scale to it than some of the And, and the fact that like they have to t- tap into this sort of like, you know, primordial force of yeah. the slayer in order to defeat it yeah. and all of that. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's it's definitely uh, right there. It takes more to defeat it. So in that sense, it's you know, Adam is certainly more powerful. Mm-hmm. Well, where do you go from there? Of course, you go. God. Of course, yeah. You know, <laughs> where's what, there go what, to go from here? Is more the the question. You know, um, that's a great question to ask, and we'll find that out at the end of season six. But before. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, okay. We need to finish uh, season five. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, so you do get this escalation. I want to, I want to talk about it a little bit though, because we, there is a, there are, and I think I even talked way back in the beginning about how a lot of people sort of see like the trajectory of um, seasons in Buffy being sort of like season three is sort of like the pinnacle mm-hmm. like you know you get there and you get the ending and you know with the the graduation day you know uh one and two and kind of all of that being sort of like um 
you know, where Buffy just gets really good. And then a lot of people see season four as kind of dragging on and not kind of having as much of a direction mm-hmm. and, and that sort of being downhill. And a lot of people do feel that like the idea of like there being a God in, you know, just sort of as a jumping the shark moment mm-hmm. almost um, in a way. So, I mean, I still like this season. Like, I think sure. there's some interesting stuff. And not that's not to say every episode is great. Mm-hmm. But I think, I do think, although we talked a little bit about how sort of the meanderingness of, meanderingness? Yeah. Uh, is that right? <laughs> like, that seems like a weird word. But um, of season four is kind of like the point yeah. in a yeah. way, you know, because it's about each of them sort of losing their way and then coming together at the yeah. end. Um, I do feel like season five is much more clear. And I, I even said up front when we first saw glory, like, like there's no confusion in the season. Right, about who, right. Like we don't get a fake out of who the big bad. No, is. she shows up early on. Yeah. Right away. Yeah. I mean, all right. Not episode one, but yeah. you know, uh, fairly, fairly quickly mm-hmm. after that. So, you know, there isn't, there it's not like other seasons where we've kind of like, oh, we thought Spike and Drew were gonna be or you know, we thought the uh uh oh, what was that kid's name? Oh, the, the I, anointed I, I, the one. anointed, yeah. The yeah. anointed one, and then you know, Spike and Drew, and then like it turns out to be Angel. Yeah. Or Angelus. Yeah. And you know, like it's not there's not like fake outs or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And like in season three we got like Mr. Trick and mm-hmm. you know, all of that before we find out the math the mayor is uh you know whatever so all that to say that like you know this from like a season art perspective like we get you know a pretty clear like yeah you know this is what's happening and it's just sort of the playing out of that and you know that coupled with like okay like oh all right well now there's a god and you know (laughs) like that kind of stuff like it becomes for some people it becomes uh, a sort of sticking point mm. of like, okay, you know, we've we've sort of we're we've gone down from you know where Buffy has been. Mm. I I still think there's plenty of good stuff. Sure. Um, obviously, sure. and and like I think this episode is is one of them. Like I I kind of like this episode. I kind of like the last one too mm-hmm. with the the troll and the fun mm-hmm. uh, you know fun stuff. But I think from like a Buffy character growth perspective like this yeah. is a really important episode yeah definitely. Um, and 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 a good one too because it does like you do see sort of all the pieces coming together and Buffy sort of like looking around at things and saying hey wait a minute I'm the one who has all the power and, yeah and that's a sort of quintessential you know revelatory moment well and and moment. essential <clears throat> for the to be it's sort of like you need her in order for her to face of being this powerful, she needs to have that moment of her own power. Like, you know, sure. even though it may be inadequate in the face of glory, you know, if there's still that triumph of, you know, she's maybe at her most powerful in this episode, or at least like realizing maybe she hasn't grown more powerful, but she's sort of realizing how much power she does have, mm-hmm. which she's right. going to need. I Like that's that, that's the niceness of the closer. It's like, just as you're like, go Buffy, that it's like, oh, crap. Like, she really is going to need everything she has because, you know, Glory is way uh, bigger than we thought. And like, you know, 
I don't know. I, I, to be honest, I wouldn't be bothered by the notion of like a God in the Buffy verse on its own, but also like, I feel like there's enough, like, you know, I feel like it's going to go in, in the along the lines of like, okay, there's hell. But what we mean by that is other dimensions and like, right. you know, God might be a term for, you know, a word which has other synonyms attached to it. You know, right. God could mean being from another dimension who has extraordinary supernatural power. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, like I joked about Apollo earlier. It doesn't necessarily mean like a character from Greek mythology or something. Um, although right. it could, and I don't know that I would mind if it did. Um, and and we've gotten hints of it in Angel too, with like the senior partners, right? And the, the powers the that be, powers, yeah. powers that be, yeah. yeah. Right. So, There's hints of like the divine supernatural in those things. Yeah. Um, well, and again, like. And how much of that is like even with um you know the angel episode uh where uh you know with Virginia where we you know Wesley pretends to be angel and all that it's like oh you know angel sort of dismiss oh so and so you know demon like she's no goddess like you know what I mean like so right. there's also like a sense that like in the supernatural world they play on the ignorance and stupidity right. of the mortals to like sort of maybe set themselves up as being more powerful than they are. Now right. that's not to say that glory isn't powerful. Like she clearly is, but like what, yeah. How do you define a God? Well, it just might be like a really strong demon, <laughs> you right. know, like right. that doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's, you know, a God in the way that we would yeah uh, necessarily think of as like, you know, yeah. a supernatural Right. Well, I guess technically. Right. I mean, you know I think I mean? like it's all comes down to like terms and semantics yeah. and what do you want to call it? Although I feel like I'd want to play the kind of Doctor Who card of like, you know, uh, you know, wh why complain about the physics when you happily enjoy the box, which is bigger on the inside? You know, I kind of would want to say that right. here too. Like, you know... Buffy's a supernatural show with magic and monsters and demons. What's the problem with a god? Like, I'm not sure. To me, that doesn't necessarily violate any, you know, if she is just yeah. literally a god. Okay. Like, I'm not sure that that bothers me too much. But, you yeah. know, I wouldn't be surprised if we got some sort of thing later on of, you know, she calls herself a yeah. god. But really what she is is just a very powerful demon like you said so yeah i mean that remains and, to be seen how much explanation we'll get about her origin and, and she's she, she's very strong but clearly not omnipotent and omniscient and all of right. that kind of right. like you know like you might associate with certain deities in right. our own you know world or whatever well and, and there's so, a difference between a god and god you know like <laughs> you know Sure. A god, to me, the gods of, like, mythologies are often very flawed and fallible and, you know, petty like she is and vain and defeatable and sometimes killable. So <laughs> um, that doesn't stop her from being, like, a legitimate character in the story to me. It doesn't mean, like, she automatically is going to win, um, you know. 
I, I kind of see her more as small d, you know, deity rather than like omniscient, mm. omnipotent, you know, all powerful God. But, um, so anyway, very interesting. Yeah. We will, uh, find out more soon, I'm sure. But we should probably move on now. We should move, yeah. And I, sorry, I didn't mean to like go off on a. Oh no, no, I think that there, was but, that was good. But I, I did want to sort of point that out, especially since you, you had brought up the thought of gods and, yeah. and um, you know that that escalation, um, which which does happen. I just don't see it as a bad thing. Sure. <laughs> uh, like like a number of people do. So yeah. Um. All right. Well, on to Doctor Who. Yeah. Last Christmas. Uh-huh. So this was an interesting episode yeah. for sure. Um I liked it. Yeah, good. Uh, I liked it. It too. was it was um so I I had sort of struggled where to <laughs> begin talking about it because because of the structure and stuff. Yeah. And I mean, you know me, like I, I don't like I tend to like things that have complicated structures. Mm-hmm. Um, which, so that wasn't a problem necessarily, but when I was trying to like, think of like, all right, is it like a dream within a dream within a dream? Right. How many layers with, do we have? Within yeah. another dream? Yeah. Like, like how many dreams are actually going yeah. on? Uh, you know, I think at one point we're like four dreams in. Yeah. At least. Three um, or four at least. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, and, and it all kind of depends on how you count their different waking up mm-hmm. and, and, um, you know, especially like with the old Clara stuff at the end and, you know, this and that. So um, anyway, like, I think there's, I, you know, I just figured it out. I think there's three for all of the other like supporting characters and it's four for the Doctor and Clara. I yeah. think that's right. Anyway, go on. <laughs> yeah. Um. So. We get all of the dreams within the dreams. Um, the so talking about structure becomes kind of hard in that instance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of want to take, like, I kind of want to look at like the main like settings that we visit in each one. So like the sort of the primary one throughout most of it is sort of the North Pole. Yeah, you know, research installation place there that we have. Um, which of course, you know, we have a Christmas episode. Of course, why not go to the North Pole, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and it's except that, like, I, I mean, I guess, I guess, I don't know. Do they have like, I know, like, for South Pole, like, you know, you can have because it's actually a continent. There's like hard ground underneath. You're not gonna like break through the ice, right? You know, the North Pole. I, do they have actual like buildings? There, I don't know. Like, to be honest, on the ice, I, I maybe not. I, I don't know. Is I it feel like enough? it's yeah. It might be a little bit uh, um, harder to sort of set up a base there. Um, but uh, in any instance, like that's fine, you know. So okay. But Santa there's... lives there, so there must be some right. sort of ground for him to build his, you know, workshop on with his stripy pole, which must um, be stripy. And uh, and. Uh, and of course, it's all a dream anyway. So like, it's not actually a real right. installation. Right. But um, even in like the Doctor Who 
universe. Right, um, right. And there's four people there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a long story as to how they all got there. Right, right. Uh, I, I, I like the repetition of that um, and how that, because it, it is sort of a normal thing that you would say, well, how did, how did you come to be working? Oh, it's a long story. Like, yeah. Just don't want to get into, yeah. it, into it. Well, turns out it's a long story because, like, apparently you didn't work that up in your dream, right. like what your backstory right, right. is. And that becomes kind of the common. It deflects um, the question. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of thing. the bit in Watership Down when they go to the Cowslips Warren and nobody can ask where anything. So anytime you start a question with where, somebody interrupts you, like, you know. Where is, oh, you have to see this thing. It's over here, you know, like, and it's not until mm-hmm. later that you realize that all your, you know, all of your questions are not being answered. Um, right. Uh, so in this installation, they have, um, we don't, I mean, so part of, part of the, it's interesting because part of the thing that this episode does, and I'm just sort of, thinking about this so feel free to correct me if i'm wrong okay. but i think one of the things this episode does is that I, there are plenty of times in doctor who episodes where we kind of get jumps and mm-hmm. you know going from one place to another and and kind of not entirely being sure what's going on until maybe there's a little explanation afterwards so like in one sense like every doctor who is sort of dreamlike yeah in 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 a certain you know way yeah but you know, still there's sort of is a story to it. But one of the things that like, like that, I think the doctor even sort of explicitly points out, you know, when he's saying like, well, think about it. How did we get from like your rooftop to, uh, you know, this North pole installation and, you know, you know, think about how dreams work. They're sort of jumpy like that. But at the same time, it's like, well, but that's what the TARDIS does. Right. It takes you from one place in time to another with, and makes it jumpy. So almost what you're saying is like, anytime you're using the TARDIS, you're in a dream Mm. world. Like, um, so there's that sort of aspect to it, you know, in the story, but there's also like, like just going, you know, going from Clara's roof and then suddenly there's this installation and then the doctor and Clara sort of like opening the door and, you know, uh, you know, and then later you get like these different, you, you get, you know, some explanation and talking back and forth, but it's like, oh, then, you know, Santa bursts in and he's suddenly back and right. all the, all these different things that it's just like, you know, one thing, the next thing. And yeah. then, you know, Claire is looking for the face hugger and, uh, you know, suddenly she's waking up and it's Christmas morning and there's Danny in a Santa outfit, you know? So like all of these different sort of jumbles that um, I think it does a pretty good job of sort of relaying that. Yeah. Well, but yeah, sorry. Sorry. I just want to finish, but, but I do, I I guess just to make the point again, that when you think about it, like it's, it's really not like the only thing it's missing is like that explicit, like, okay, let's get in the TARDIS and go to this next scene. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's also the sense in which it actually isn't all that different from other Doctor Who right, episodes. Right. So, like, like, 
you know, and there's there's implications, you know, sort of about that throughout that, you know, like the doctor is Santa Claus and this and mm-hmm. that. Well, like, I want to talk about that kind of stuff mm-hmm. too, specifically about the doctor, but just, I just wanted to point out from like a sort of structural perspective that like, it's not that different from other Doctor Who episodes, mm-hmm. but in the, at the same time, it's like kind of very different because it just, it, it like leaves out one little link mm-hmm. between things and, and it gives it that sort of dream quality to it. Um, so sorry, go ahead. No, I was interrupting what, what you, you so <laughs> it's fine. Um, um, yeah, I, I like that how it's like, it uses what you know about the show, like against you, you know, like it tricks you into not realizing what's going on because, you know, you're so used to the convention of the show that like, well, the doctor is just going to turn up out of the blue and we are just going to go somewhere where there's some sort of alien invasion. We're going to help these people. And we don't know. And it doesn't occur to you until later that, okay, why are we doing this? Why did we come here? When did we come here? You know, um, what are these people doing? Why are they trying to get past the dream? Like, you know, it does just go so fast and it seems Mm. normal enough by doctor who standards that you just don't question it, which is, like like you said, that's kind of how dreams work, that they're weird, but they're also, there's something that when you're in it, it seems totally natural. And it's not until you wake up, you're like, man, that was a weird dream, but I yeah. totally accepted it when it was happening. Um, uh, yeah, and I think that's a good comparison to say, like, the TARDIS does kind of work like a dream, and the TARDIS always kind of works with, like, you know, like stories, like the kind of TV editing of, well, we're going to skip this scene and go straight to the next, like skip all the in-between and go right to the next thing. Um, You know, which is kind of how stories work, whether it's in your head or on the page or whatever. Um, I feel like I had another point and it's gone. Um, Man, I'll have to think of it later. I lost it. (laughs) What's... That's all right. What, oh, what are I the remember. That... Wait, wait, wait. I remember. Um, Sorry. There's the another little thing which, in retrospect, is sort of like nice is at the end of Death in Heaven when there's the little scene with Santa at the end. Um, it's the Doctor asleep in the TARDIS, and so you realize when you watch that again, he's mm. kind of dozing off, and then Santa knocks on the door. So you kind of are like, ah, oh, you know, he's already fallen asleep we're already in the dream and we didn't know it, you know, he's sort of waking up just like Clara does. Um, and not yet realizing that he's already been like, you know, uh, succumbed to the dream. So, um, it's a nice little Um, bit of foreshadowing there, but. One of, one of the things that, uh, that I wondered the second time I was watching it, was so we get you know we have the beings that are causing the dreaming the cantrofari or whatever mm-hmm. um the dream crabs uh how how much are they controlling or influencing you know the dreams right. um we get sort of one explanation from the doctor that um you know sort of early on or i don't remember exactly when it is but um 
you know, where he talks about uh, uh, they induce a dream state that keeps you happy and relaxed in a perfectly realized dream world as you just dis as you dissolve. Merciful, I suppose. Um, and there, it, it's almost like, um, you know, the original uh, explanation of the Weeping Angels right. in Blink. You know, it's like they kill they you. Kill kindly, you nicely, you know? yeah. Uh, and and so it has a similar sort of feel as that, yeah. but um by the time we get to hey don't get too close to that screen because we're in a nightmare yeah. <laughs> like you also get the sense that like maybe maybe the crabs are you know influencing mm -hmm. events a little bit here as well um or maybe this refers more to like the level of degeneration of your brain or like, you know, so I, you know, I don't know what it is, right. but just there does seem to be the fact that there is like, even though it's a dream and it might be, you know, a perfectly realized dream world, like the installation at the North pole does not seem like a perfectly realized dream world for any of them. So, right. you know, what does that mean? Like it, it seems to me that, that they're inducing, you know, some particular vision, especially since it's a shared dream and, you know, they're all sort of having it together. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I was thinking about also, um, is, is that aspect of the dream itself, uh, because we get, you know, okay, so we get Santa Claus, mm -hmm. uh, and we get the share. I actually didn't even think about the sharedness of the dream before, but uh, both of those things. Uh, so, so both the sharedness of the dream and Santa Claus, who um, the doctor uh, later says is some kind of construct or whatever, mm -hmm. um, are both. I thought interesting if we think about them as sort of comparisons to Amy's choice mm -hmm. uh, way back in season five. Uh, yeah. Six, mm, five, five. Um, when, uh, when we get, you know, the, what the psychic pollen or whatever it was yeah. um, that induces this dream that turns out that's a shared dream and which also has a dream construct right. uh, of the dream Lord. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I had only sort of been thinking about this like near the end of my second watch, mm -hmm. which was not too long <laughs> before we actually started recording. Yeah. So I haven't I haven't actually thought about that in depth. But I think um, it, it, as attested to the fact that I was just sort of realizing about the sharedness of the dream being also another aspect of it. Yeah. Um, you know, so I don't you know, I don't know how much to say about that but i think it's a really interesting comparison um to sort of think about those two and think about um you know the dream lord and santa mm -hmm. especially both being sort of aspects of the doctor mm -hmm. um and not just like you know oh you know they both sort of in their own way require one or the other you know to choose different things or to yeah. you know do certain things but they're also very antagonistic and so you get this right. sense of like the doctor and you know i mean 
we've gotten lots of hints throughout the series of like the doctor not liking himself, right, you know, right. so much at times. Um, and we get these manifestations being, uh, you know, sort of attesting to that uh, dislike for himself. Uh, yes. Yeah, so oh, he, he calls Santa Claus. Uh, uh, oh no, no. He, sorry. He calls the, um, things attacking them metaphorical constructs representing a psychic attack within within a shared dream space but then he goes on to call santa a dream construct so it's like mm -hmm. is that that different than the sort of blind lumpy things that are dream constructs like right. this is this is the doctor's blind lumpy thing um or you know um right. what does glory call her minion oh, lumpy, again lumpy, sweet the, lumpy minion yeah, sweet lumpy yeah. minion. Um, you know, this this is the doctor's sweet lumpy minion, right. <laughs> Santa Claus. Uh, but so but I, I anyway. like that though because you know, the Dream Lord and Santa are maybe both reflections or manifestations of the Doctor. Um, but you know, if the Dream Lord is the kind of negative reflection, you know, Santa is kind of the positive one that he's, you know your dream that's trying to save us. And I like, he's like, you just defined me. Like that's literally, literally what he is. He's appealing to the better nature rather than the, the dream Lord who, you know, preys on the doctors, you know, mm -hmm. um, insecurities and, you know, his, his more selfish, you know, you know, gets him to try to, you know, choose between false dichotomies and abandon his companions and you know he kind of emphasizes you know oh you're this selfish old man who just you know destroys the lives of your young companions like all the kind of negative stuff that the doctor um uh yeah. is maybe there's truth there but then this is the kind of flip side to that is the spirit of you know, Father Christmas, um, uh, which I do want to point out, we've gotten before. It, it, there's in the Doctor Dances. There's the line about, you know, Rose calls him Father Christmas, and he says, "Who's who says I'm not red bicycle when you were 12? So he kind of, you know, yeah. jokes about that. But there's that kind of like, there's a similarity between this sort of otherworldly benevolent spirit who's this sort of patron saint of children and family and fun mm. and goodness and all these sort of you know but again still that antagonism there's something about the doctor especially with this doctor who's sort of repelled by the kind of jolliness of it all like <laughs> you know like, you know, sure. happy Easter. He says, like, determined to get it wrong. Like, you know, he's not going to wish him a happy Christmas. Um, you know, and be yeah. sure to save room well, for a tangerine. Nobody likes the tangerines. Like, he's he's playing the kind of grump, even if, you know. And and I, I think that, you know, fits with the personality. Like, the, the comparison works with the different doctors, too. Because, like, you get... Um, you know, you get the sense of Eleven, mm -hmm. you know, Matt Smith sort of being, um, now, I mean, we've talked about how he can, he can be somewhat 
dark and sure and, right you know, which too. they but all especially they all do, yeah especially in sort of the beginning in season five early on you know you're you're sort of thinking of him as relatively jolly and fun yeah. and you know um you know sort of uh slapsticky mm-hmm. and uh you know so you get sort of the uh and anti- antipathy of you know the dream lord coming out in sort of uh you know that way of like no you're actually not fun and yeah. slapsticky you're you know, right. reckless and destructive right. and, right. and sort of calling him out in that sort of more serious way. Whereas, you know, 12 is already that serious mm-hmm. kind of, you know, brooding, uh, more so old, old man. Mm-hmm. And so um, you get what turns out to be actually sort of a younger looking Santa, mm-hmm. right? right? Like, I yeah. mean, he's not, this isn't like, jolly old santa this is like jolly like yeah middle-aged santa right. <laughs> like you know we're not we're not right. talking about like you know right it's uh, not richard attenborough it's nick frost yeah. who's sort of young yeah. and cool and makes movies with simon Pegg. like <laughs> you know right there's something so, kind of youthful about him you're right so there is that that sense of like yeah like younger santa who's jolly and whatever and of course that's what the antagonist to this doctor is going to look like, you know, someone who's more fun and, you know, uh, a little, you you know, he's going to, he's going to jab at you, but it's going to be good naturedly in that way that like, if you're not good natured in that way yourself, you're just going to find annoying. Right. Right. You know, um, whatever. Yeah, I like um, when he makes them hold hands, and the doctor's like, silly, "You know, I don't hold. Yeah. I'll, I'll hold Clara's hand, but I'm not gonna. No, I don't want this hand holding nonsense." Um, right. You know, and again, the the let the last one I want to point out too is the, you know, how do you get all the presents in one sleigh? Well, it's bigger on the inside. You know, that kind of like right, right. We're really, you know, uh on the same side here, but it's done in a way that's like competitive. Like, Oh, you think you're so unique. Well, I have, I also have, you know, a vehicle, which is bigger on the inside and the elves giving their, I think we talked earlier before we started recording about their kind of running color commentary, you know, like you're making (laughs) like, you know, you know, little snide, little comments and cheering him on from the sidelines. Um, Yep. You know, like yep. kind of getting excited when Santa gets a good one in and everything. Well, and and even sort of the ridiculousness of like the toy guns and that kind of thing. Yeah. It's, you know, like, again, sort of maybe poking fun at the fact that the doctor doesn't like guns, but also these aren't real guns. Right, right. So, you know what I mean? Like, they're, you know, just all these sort of little, yeah. little pokes and stuff that are just sort of funny and and you know yeah um, whatever but again like you can see as sort of being the perfect antagonist to this doctor mm-hmm. um might have gotten along real well with 11 but this right one, yeah not so much no um, um so. i want to just on this before on the subject of the elves the one uh is played by dan starkey who is strax so for what that's worth it's strax out of his makeup um, hmm. so if you go back and look at them, you'll probably 
recognize you there's the facial features are similar enough that you can kind of see them but um it's cool to see him you know get be able to actually see him for once um yeah so um and and um of course you have to you have to say uh there's you know what better person actor mm. to play Santa Claus than a guy named Nick? Fox. I know. Is it I like mean, the come the, on. the most Christmassy name ever? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, just, I mean, just beyond the fact that like he's a funny actor and yeah. you know does it well and all of that, like just that name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, He was perfect. Clearly perfect born name. for this role. Right. Um. Yeah. No, they are really good. Um. Well, and I want to mention too, uh, the the great ex- the hilarious exchange about you know oh yeah your your mom and dad one day a year for no particular reason just out of the blue suddenly decide to give you a big great pile of presents oh because they love you so much oh it's a nice story um, <laughs> that whole thing of like I think it keeps coming I think we're going to talk more about Clara's and the Doctor's specific dream worlds and everything but. Um, this repeated idea of, you know, the indistinguishableness of reality and dreams, because not only because the dreams are plausible, but because sometimes reality is ridiculous too. And so it's like, when you put it that way, you know, that does seem kind of implausible that like, our parents decide to celebrate us and give us a whole bunch of stuff for no reason one day a year. Like, you know, put in those terms, that sounds kind of far-fetched. But, you know, the doctor says, like, that's what makes it hard to tell the difference between reality and dreams is that they're both ridiculous. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, you know, so he is saying, well, obviously Santa's a dream because of all these ridiculous things. But then he turns it right back around, like, well, you know, that must mean the doctor and the TARDIS are a dream too, you know, because they're equally ridiculous. So all this kind of like playing with those levels of, you know, uh, I guess fantasy and reality, you know, the, the imagination versus the quote real world. Sure. Um, Yeah. Um, so let's talk about, uh, Clara and the doctor because well, I don't, I mean, okay, so there's four other people. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know how much more to say about them. I mean, other than like, well, they're, they're, you know, they obviously sort of help to realize that this is a dream and like, yeah. we don't understand what, if any connection there is between the doctor and Clara and those four. Right. Um, and even learn that potentially they're in different time periods mm-hmm. or whatever. Well, he says time zones, right? Which is a different than I like think time he, period. I think that's meant to mean time periods. Okay, that's kind of what I thought, yeah. but like zones the way, in the way time and it. space, not literally like zones right. from around the world, right? Um, uh, and so. You know, we don't we don't necessarily know what, if any, connection they have to each other. Um, 
other than that they all sort of ended up as victims of these yeah. green crabs. And uh, um, they have names too. Yeah, but, they do. The only, so the only ones I really want to point out, so I didn't even really know Bellow's name before looking it up, to be honest, but I do like the moment when she wakes up and you realize she's in the wheelchair. Um, Cause it's yeah. just a nice kind of, you know, no fuss, but very subtle reference to this idea of like in dreams, you know, the rules being different and, and her maybe for a night getting to walk again, you know, and, and experience mm. something that, you know, through imagination that, isn't necessarily a reality in the physical world. I think that's a kind of just a nice little moment. Um, and then I want to point out, I feel like of all of them shown as the most developed easily. Um, sure. And so a couple things with her. Um, so the actress's name is Faye Marseille. Um, and if you've seen the most recent season of Game of Thrones, She's the the waif in the House of Black and White with Arya. Um, So she's kind of had a couple prominent roles recently. Um, And I know a lot of people really liked her in this episode. Like there was a little, whenever you get a good guest star like that, there's always that little, oh, potential next companion type thing. Um, Mm. And I feel like I kind of, you know, I wouldn't necessarily mind that. Like, you know, she's sort of, I think gave a really fun performance. Um, I like her, the the goofiness of her like dancing across the floor. Um, and, you know, you just get like little hints of more personality with her. Like I like her kind of like dingy apartment that she wakes up in. And the fact that she's kind of reluctant to go back to it. Like she really just wants, you know, give me your numbers so that we can hang out and everything. Like there's something kind of, without getting into her backstory, it kind of hints at more depth to her and that, Mm. you know, she's maybe a little lonely at home and, you know, she's sad to see these relationships sort of go away. Um, And then you get her sort of Christmas itinerary, which consists of a lot of movies as well as Game of Thrones. Um, And then like forgive Dave at the bottom. So, um, you know, I feel like she's kind of a, she's like a Sally Sparrow or one of these characters who there are kind of hints of greater development, but we don't necessarily get to know all the detail. You're just sort of, you know, given a little bit more to work with than with some of the others. So sure, um, I'm not sure there's a lot more to say other than that. Like, I think there is potential for the character, maybe like, I think she was played well and maybe we'll see her again someday, but um, whether we will or not, I don't know. Well, once she's done with Game of Thrones. Once she's, yeah. So that might, you know, <laughs> that might get in the way a bit of the shooting schedule. So maybe we shouldn't hold our breath, but. Um, uh, looking at IMDb, she's at least in the first episode of season six. Oh, there we go. Times, okay. So, yeah. Um, so maybe she'll be busy for a while, but um, yeah, I, between, who knows? Between these that. two, I feel like she's someone to keep your eye on. Like she's had, she's a good sure. actor, had some prominent roles recently. So maybe she'll, she's kind of a 
a name which is up and coming. Um, so. Fair enough. Um, okay. I think that's really all there is to say about the group. So maybe we should move on to Clara and the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Clara, let, and, and maybe just to sort of step through the dreams because mm -hmm. I don't know how better else to, do, to it, do it. Um, so, you know, we first sort of, uh, see Clara after hearing like, like she hears something outside her window and goes to investigate and it's like Santa, you know, ran his, uh, uh, sleigh to the ground or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, or like the, you know, the roof below where she is. And, um, uh, so there's sort of like, you know, at first there's sort of like this incredulity there, just like, what the heck is going on? And, um, you know, I don't know that there's a ton to say about that encounter per se, but just that, like, um, you get that, like, the funny stuff of, like, oh, so you, you know, you thought it was your parents putting the presents under the tree all right. all the time or whatever, and, you know, and kind of the, you know, the elves jumping in there too, like, oh, yeah, like, that's what everyone thinks, yeah, you yeah. know, like, there's there's this um how naive like, you know we get it all the time if only yeah. you know you weren't so yeah naive or whatever um but then we get the doctor sort of showing up and telling her and her following his direction mm -hmm. immediately you know telling her to sort of get into the TARDIS and don't ask questions and whatever and that that beginning you know hint of of antipathy between you know the two of them mm -hmm. of like um you know just just that there's something there that there's some sort of history or mm -hmm. you know that they know each other like you know I, the doctor's like i know what's going on here and you know that kind of stuff yeah um you know i know what this is i know what's happening i know what's at stake and and santa being like i don't think you do doctor <laughs> which of course you know in retrospect i mean if Santa knows, then the doctor knows, right? right? Like, I mean, you know, because he's the construct, right, he's right. the dream construct. Um, and, and, you know, the doctor sort of retorting with happy Easter. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. that's the worst insult you could right. give to Santa. Right. Like he's um, determined to get it wrong. Like, you know, just yeah. to show you the disregard that I have. Um, yeah. Um, and the, you know, all right, so then there's also like the whole thing with the tangerines, yeah, um, which I, I had to look up uh, because I did not realize that like apparently putting a tangerine in a stocking, a Christmas stocking, is like a thing. <laughs> um, you know that it's some sort of tradition. Yeah. Um, apparently, I'm so I saw several different interpretations of what that could mean. Um, and I know you did too, because we like we're reading the same article. But um, the the idea being that uh, it's it's sort of a representation of um, the supposed original Saint Nick, who like went around giving money to mm. uh, you know people uh, who were poor or whatever. 
Um, but apparently it's a tradition that's fading and maybe not a lot of people like it. Right. <laughs> so Nobody likes the um, tangerines. Um, yeah. Well, and I did want to point out, if this is last Christmas, the link back to the first Christmas episode with, you know, David Tennant's first episode where the, you know, he finds a Satsuma in uh, Jackie's boyfriend's robe. Um, and and he kind of talks about it in the same like derogatory way like oh doesn't that just sum up christmas you go through all those presents and right at the end tucked away in the bottom there's always one stupid old satsuma like this is the crap gift that everybody you know you know is sort of the anti-climax to the whole thing but you know then he uses that satsuma to defeat the sycorax um and I think it's particularly interesting, the line, because he's, that's when he says, you know, he's trying to figure out what sort of man I am. And he says, no, no second chances. I'm that sort of a man. Um, and what do we get at the end of this episode? It's the 12th Doctor getting a second chance and saying, mm -hmm. you know, I never get second chances. You know, I wonder why I did this time. And then you get the sort of the hint of the tangerine on the windowsill. Um <laughs> so, uh, you know, I like that kind of link. There's some sort of link between fruit and second chances, apparently. Um, <laughs> and maybe not much fruit you want to have a second chance. With, no. And, but, and maybe um, like a kind of a full circle, like instead of no second chances, now we're embracing second chances. Um, sure. You know. Well, and of course, the doctor... Uh, you know, 10 was more along the lines of, I don't give people second right, chances. Right. I, I'm, that's not to say that he didn't necessarily take them. Right, <laughs> right. That's true. Yeah, uh, but a nice little link there, I think. Sure, sure. Uh, no, it is. And I didn't even, I did not pick up at all on that connection. But I mean, it seems, it seems too much, like, it seems more than just the fact that like tangerines at Christmas right. are, you know, a gift, like, like the fact that there is that reference to second chances makes it seem like, you know, more, yeah. uh, uh, deliberate than, mm -hmm. you know, just, Oh, there's this silly tradition that we do. Right. And let's, you know, reference that. Um, so, the next time we see them is in sort of the North Pole installation. Um, and, uh, there, you know, so there's sort of like the, the dramatic, you know, coming in while uh, Shona is doing her little dancing thing, which I agree with you. I, I like that. It's kind of funny mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, uh, unexpected. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, especially um, before you know the purpose of it. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Uh, so yeah, so you get the doctor and Clara sort of bursting in, um, and quickly figuring out like what's going on with these sort of telepathic, mm -hmm. uh, creatures or whatever. And the doctor trying to distract Clara, um, first with math, which is like, okay, why? Um, I mean... Because she's like an English teacher. So just like, right. why suddenly like math questions? Out of the book? Like, why aren't you asking your questions about like famous books or something? Right. But um, 
you know, the, uh, the thing that sort of really ends up distracting her (laughs) is when the doctor, you know, suggests that Danny Pink might be off, you know, courting other women. Um, Texting women of low moral character. (laughs) Yeah. However you want to That's sort of his... That's what you young folk do, isn't it? Like that kind of slightly out of touch way sure. of putting it. Um, sure. Uh, and and of course that does draw Clara's attention because yeah. not only, um, you know, not only would that not be true, uh, you know, obviously Danny is dead, so it like can't even be true. Like. Um, course the doctor doesn't know that so you get uh you get her sort of like slapping him Mm -hmm. and you know the uh sort of fallout from that but then um also the they they reveal each other how you know their sort of last conversation went uh was pretty much just a string of lies on both of their parts like um you know that she had said Danny came back. We well, the doctor sort of assumed first because she saw the bracelet. Mm-hmm. He saw the bracelet on her um wrist and was like, "Oh, Danny came back." And so she just sort of like let that continue. Like she sort of egged it on a little bit and let yeah. him continue to think that Danny was back and um she did that, she says, so that he would be able to go find Gallifrey. Well, of course, Gallifrey didn't come back the way that the mistress had said it did. Um, The doctor was lying so that Clara would not want to come with him and, uh, you know, would stay with Danny. So um, just that aspect of, yeah, like they're both lying. They're, they're both uh, now telling the truth. And, I was kind of surprised because I expected there to be more from that. Mm. And I guess part of the, part of the reason why I'm spending like more time than it seems maybe I should on that is, is for that reason, because you kind of do expect like, like I did not expect them both to just kind of like be like, okay, moving on. Like, right. Well, I mean, I guess there's a limit to how much they can really call the other one on it without it being yeah. hypocritical. And, and I do think you get that kind of awkward pause where they realize they've both been lying. And they don't necessarily say it, but I get the idea that, like, you kind of realize, like, well, we both kind of, nobody profited from this, clearly, because we've both yeah. been off probably very lonely in our corners when we could have been together the whole time, but neither of us were, you know, smart enough to just tell the truth. So there's this sense of, to go back to that theme of second chances, there's this idea of like wasted time, like just purposelessly, you know? Um, uh, I mean, now trying to spare each other's feelings, but you know, that kind of thing of, well, we both screwed up. So maybe that's why there's not really a, confrontation about it because it's sort of they're both at fault um Mm -hmm. because you feel like if one of them had come clean maybe the other one would have too um you know uh you know maybe if the doctor said Gallifrey's not there Clara would have said 
well, here's what happened with Danny. And they could have kept traveling or something, you know, but there's this like, neither of them is really in the right. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah, no. And I'm not necessarily saying it should have gone on longer. I guess I just expected was surprised it to, that yeah. it didn't. Like I expected yeah. there to be a little bit more. Yeah. Something. Yeah. Blaming. Yeah. Back and forth. And like maybe more explicit statement of those things you just said. Mm -hmm. But I think you're right. Like, I mean, I don't necessarily think the way it happened was bad at all. Yeah. And and maybe it it's better to have it sort of be that understated, like mm -hmm. long pause and then, okay, let's move on. Right. <laughs> um, so I just was expecting something different. Sure. Well, what it boils down to. And I do want to keep the, the theme of lying open because I kind of think, um, if I can jump ahead a little bit, um, not too far. When when Clara goes into the next layer of dream and her into her Danny dream, um, mm -hmm. it seems like that's the kind of um, natural extension of the lying theme that we've seen her become more and more of a liar. Now you get yeah. her lying to herself, you know, and she's, you know in sure. this sort of perfectly constructed dream world, you know, which that's fine. That's not her fault. That's what the dream crab does. But what does she do when she starts to get the messages about this isn't real, you're dying, you need to wake up. She deliberately sort of blinks them away um, and chooses to ignore them. And so maybe there's not a big confrontation because I, I feel like until then she still hasn't really learned the lesson yet of, mm. you know, how of like, the more she continue, you know, what a, what a web we weave, like the, the, the more she right. keeps lying, the worse it's going to get until, you know, she can't even necessarily tell the difference anymore. Um, yeah. you know, which is what makes that dream so effective that she wants it to be true and she believes in it so strongly. And that's the temptation is, um, you know, the seductive quality of the dream with Danny, I think. Mm -hmm. um and she has to choose uh truth even if it's more painful um well and she does but so okay so we get you know we get her in this sort of fairy tale dream mm -hmm. um and there's you know hints that she knows kind of what's going on obviously like the sort of blatant ones and then the doctor comes right um but even just like her ability to guess all of the presents, right, right. you know, that, that Danny got her. It's like, you don't think that's a little weird? Like, you know exactly everything that he got you. Yeah. Um, and that kind of thing. But, you know, thinking about Danny too, like, you know, this is where she wants to be. Like, this was sort of what she was hoping would come out of the talk that she was having with him on the phone right. before he got hit by a car. And so, um, you know, you can sort of understand why that is, but then you get sort of Danny's speech to her mm -hmm. or, you know, conversation with her about, okay, you can be sad that I'm gone, but only for five minutes a day. <laughs> and like, you, you know, um, just kind of laying out sort of the rules for her mm -hmm. of like that she needs to move on and that, you know, um, she can't just stay here and which is you know 
throughout too it's very much a danny sort of thing it's uh you know he's asking will this be better for you in the long run and kind of at, and talking with the doctor like you know is this what's best for her and if so then yeah clara you need to let go of me and go do what's good for you and and that's a perfectly danny thing to do but Danny's also a dream construct. Right. Of course, because he's dressed as Santa, you know, <laughs> like, right. He's another right. dream that's trying to save her. Um, and so, yeah, well, but not of the, I don't think he's a dream construct of the doctor. I guess I, no, I suppose that's no, an interesting I, I, question. I interpret I thinking, it as he's a part of her. That was always he's a my, part of her. yeah. And so, so part of the dream, part of her, dream danny is telling her to go pursue her dream (laughs) you know what i mean like like that that there's an aspect and and not an unwarranted one because i think it was part of his actual character too like that's what was partly attractive about him was that he took care of people you know so that they could go do what they wanted you know like her (laughs) you know that you know like all he asked was that she was truthful. And that's the thing, right? That's the thing that is hard for her here is to be truthful. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, what's truthful? Well, the truth is, if I don't wake up, then I'm dead. And so, you know, for him, it's it's interesting because you it's easy to think of this as Danny, but it's not. It's her dream Danny. Mm-hmm. And it's the Danny and her perfect dream, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just like whatever. And the Danny and her perfect dream says go. Right. Leave. This Danny is like perfectly supportive and yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> you have my blessing. So go with the doctor. You know, so yeah. that's it's it's definitely an interesting sort of yeah. you know even even the fact that, you know, now we're four dreams deep at this point, mm-hmm. you know, that that within that um you know, sort of structure or whatever, you get this, you know, you get Clara, even then being like, okay, ultimately, this is what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's Danny who's telling her yeah, that that's the case. So, um, Well, and you feel like whether it's him or whether it's it's her idealized version of him, you need some sort of uh, closure with him in order for her to move on from that relationship. You know, she has sure. to feel like um, she, you know, obviously things couldn't continue um, with her with the kind of like rage and guilt that she had in Death in Heaven, I think. Like, this is the kind of making peace with the idea and you can be sad for five minutes, but it's time to sort of move on um with your life yeah so um and again i want to bring up the second chances again because danny talks about you know every christmas potentially being last christmas that's the point Mm -hmm. of getting together and this is bonus and an extra it's it's a second chance to get some closure and to say the things you wanted you didn't get to say but um so take that as the blessing but um you know, uh, you can't dwell on that. You still have to move on. Yeah. Even if it's only in a dream. Even if it's only in a dream. Yeah. Uh, 
So then we go from there to old Clara. Mm-hmm. Um. So this is so this is like the first fake out, right? Right. Um. Where you know, doctor wakes up and like realizes something's wrong and that Clara's not waking up or whatever Mm -hmm. and so like he rushes you know in the TARDIS to her house and turns out he's you know 62 years late (laughs) to seeing her like that and not that the dream crab has been on her for 62 years but that she's been living right this is the kind of doing things the mention of different time periods that they could be from this is the sort of realization of that yeah um and so uh you know, you have, I mean, it's it's a pretty touching scene. Like, I mean, obviously not the first time we've seen a companion grow old. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, just sort of that, uh, uh, you know, the touchingness of, like, he doesn't see her any different. Like, you know, again, mm-hmm. his, like, I can't tell if you're old or yeah. young. Like, Am I young? I just, no idea. <laughs> no, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, but just that, that, uh you know, in a way, the doctor is always the same, mm-hmm. but you know, to him, the companion is always like the same. Like he still sees her the way she was when she was twenty, whatever. Yeah. You know, and um, also that you know, hey, okay, so this is still a dream, but Dream Clara has had a pretty good life. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference being between the two, right, is that she's had a pretty good life now without Danny. Like, mm-hmm. like now she's able to like sort of dream of her life on her own, right? Um, and apparently never having gotten married, although there were pl- plenty of proposals, um, and that right. she spent her life traveling mm-hmm. and teaching in like all these different countries, and and seems like she enjoyed herself. Maybe you know not as much as she would have enjoyed staying with the doctor, but yeah, like that. This is that even without either Danny or the doctor, she still was able to find some sort of fulfillment Mm -hmm. in her life. And, you know, right. um, Yeah. yeah. Which is nice. That's a good. Yeah. Like with Danny and with everything, if we're taking this all as like, everything is some sort of psychological bit of Clara. That's true. Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought about it that way, but like she's able to envision a happy future without Danny. Um, Yeah. You know, and that's a, a, a plausible thing that she can sort of conceive of. Yeah. And that's not to say that she wouldn't rather have spent that time with Danny. Like I'm sure she would have, and maybe would have even been objectively happier if you can make that comment, you know, but, but that even despite what happened that like, yeah, she was able to move on. And apparently the fact that the doctor never came back and got her Mm -hmm. like, she was still able to, like, she found out, okay, well, that's all right. I like to travel. I know how to travel. I can travel. Yeah. And I can teach and I can support myself and do all those things. So, um, I don't know. I, I, I like that, um, you know, that aspect of it. And, uh, yeah. So, um, and then we get the, you know. Uh, well, wait, quickly, too. There's the, oh, the little reversal a couple little reversals there too of um, him kind of helping her 
pull open the crack, the Christmas cracker, you know, that being a callback to time of the doctor where, you know, it's old Matt Smith in the chair and she sort of helps him open the Christmas Mm. cracker. Um, but also the, the thing of, you know, there was one other man, but he was impossible. Like the, the, the flip of that word, you know, she being the impossible girl, um, he's impossible in a, in a slightly, you know, impossible, maybe meaning difficult, but you know, um, it's a nice, I think, uh, little callback to that word. Um, yeah. Yep. No, I agree. Um, so then we get the further, uh, you know, sort of the doctor saying, uh, he wished that he had come back sooner. Mm. And then we get Santa Claus. Oh, right, <laughs> like, <laughs> is that the case? Yeah. Because I'm here. And this is, this too is a dream. Funny you should say. Uh, yeah. Uh, and him waking up again and yeah. going, you know, and this time it being Clara as we know her. Yeah. Uh, now and, and, uh, right. And, and, you know, there's where you get your second. You know, the doctor gets his second chance. And to... and Clara, too. I think both of them, sure. you know, again, if you do take them as realizing, wow, if we hadn't lied to each other, we could have stayed together. You know, this being that idea yeah. of, well, that was dumb. Let's not do that. Like, we would rather, you know, embracing that we really would rather travel together. And maybe maybe they were, you know, grateful for the time alone, but, but kind of, uh, being excited to, you know, like if Danny is Clara's subconscious telling her to embrace her dream of traveling in the TARDIS, well, there's your answer. (laughs) You know, she would really like to do that. And, um, and they have a second chance. They didn't accidentally wait too long and miss it. Um, Mm -hmm. so, and I remember, um, again, I think I said last one that death in heaven could have been Clara's last episode. The same is true with this, that I don't think, um, uh, the audience knew whether Clara would be back again. And so I remember it being, you know, feeling like, oh, this is it. It's going to leave her in her old age and that'll be the last we see of Clara. So it being a big shock when there's the fake out again and you know it turns out that there's more to the story but um and at that point you're just like all right is you gonna wake up one more time (laughs) yeah yeah well and i always feel like with the with the tangerine left on the windowsill i always felt like there's a slight inception kind of thing here of like you know Mm. is the is the dreidel going to fall down? You know, like, are we in the, are we still in the dream or not? Like, I, I mean, I don't think it's left quite ambiguously like that, but at the same time, there is that kind of thing of, I'm still waiting for the fake out. Like, I'm not quite sure where, you know, sure. where the end of the dreaming is anymore. Um, sure. So. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, um, any any thoughts that you have any final thoughts here because we probably should wrap yeah um i don't think so i think we got through uh a lot of it and 
So we'll do our little uh, season nine recap, and then we'll season season eight. eight recap. Excuse me, and then we'll get on to season nine, which is airing as we speak. It's not finished yet, so it'll be the first time that we're watching episodes that I haven't like seen the end of the story of. Like, so mm. I might be speculating along with you at least for the first couple weeks, but um, sure. So yeah. Well, all right. And we'll be back with some more Angel next week with the uh, return of a character we've seen a couple times, but not not like a main character or anything. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. All right. Cool. See you then. Mm -hmm.